It is a new season for Bible reading Christians. Around the world, Christians are starting fresh with a liturgical calendar. Christians worldwide starting with scriptures that anticipate and look forward to the birth of Christ, the season of Advent, which is why we light a candle for these weeks. Now, some of you, for the past eight weeks, if you were here for the Identity Theft Sermon Series, you were waiting for a passage to be read that correctly identified our human sinful condition, the just judgment of God, and the very serious consequences we have coming to us because of the choices we've made. In fact, you wondered if I skimped, we skimped, but may I skimped on the readings from the Bible. Well, thank God for Advent and for the prophets, because Isaiah will help some of you who were longing for that kind of a reading. This morning from Isaiah chapter 64, hear the word of the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and as when fire causes water to boil, oh, that you would come down to make your name known to your adversary so that nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds and when we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We all became like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Outside the walls of the Christian church during this season, there is a continual merrymaking and posturing of happy holidays. Inside the walls of the church, however, we are forced, when reading scripture, to take Advent more seriously. When we open the scriptures at Advent, we get, instead of merrymaking, a, a lament from the prophet Isaiah. A lament. It, it, it's Isaiah with a plea, a pleading, just a little short of a begging God to come down. Tear open the heavens, you can imagine, with your bare skin with your hands move the firmament come through the sky come down here where you've been before make the earth shake goodness let your adversaries know that you're still present we know we've made a mess of things but show up God just come now because we don't think we can bear being without you come the prophet Isaiah says in a lament he interrupts our holiday. Our holiday's just begun, and here already the prophet Isaiah is lamenting. It sounds a little like the jingle I heard on the radio this week. It's the most miserable time. And it reminds me a touch of when grandparents came to visit for the holidays. For years, when they, our grandparents came, the pantry was just 
bursting with goodies. It, it, when their station wagon drove up, the pantry was automatically overflowing with, with every kind of cookie we never had during the regular year, with something, something called an icebox cookie, because there used to be iceboxes, and something called a, a sour cream drop cookie, and some little pinwheel thing that had dates. Nobody liked dates, but when Grandma puts them in these cookies, oh my word, the pantry was overflowing with sweets on the holidays, and, and then always sort of the customary loaf of bread with one tablespoon of everything good for you. One tablespoon wheat germ, one tablespoon flaxseed, one tablespoon alfalfa sprouts, one tablespoon lecithin. You've had that kind of bread? And a bag of grapefruits. The older grandma got just maybe one, one platter of cookies and the bread and the grapefruits until they got quite old and she couldn't bake anymore. But somehow, here comes the bag of grapefruits on Christmas morning. I, I, don't, do you like, I don't like grapefruits. I don't care how much sweet she sprinkled on the top. It was a sour Christmas, if that's all there was. And when I open the text and I read Isaiah this morning, it feels a little bit like somebody's spoiling my holiday. Isaiah, come, break open the heavens, come down here in our filth. He moves from a, confession, from a plea to a confession rather abrupt, abruptly and almost without explanation. He even blames God, we sinned because you were absent. And, and in Isaiah's passage, there is room in his plea for some self-reflection, which we'll do a little more of next week when we think about repentance and Advent. But it's clear for Israel, for the prophet Isaiah, unless there's a supernatural event, they can't tell that God is present. So come, shake things up a little bit. That, that's the request. Go ahead, God, show up. Scare us half to death if you have to. If that's the kind of God you are, we'll take our chances with you because we don't much like being alone. It was a real world for them, for Israel. They've come through a, a season of unprecedented violence, unprecedented um, power and tension and threats. And here's that prophet Isaiah wondering, not only from their history of now 150, 200 years, why did you deliver us over to our enemies, the Assyrians? Why did you give us to the Babylonians into exile? And now here we've come home and look at Jerusalem laying in ruins. What kind of a homecoming is this? Where is the mighty hand, the glorious arm of Yahweh God? Just show up, Isaiah begs. It's catastrophic literature attempting to overcome despair. Please show up, God. I believe Isaiah has a word to offer you and I as we move through Advent together, and that is what the season is for, to remember the experience of the past partially. It is about half of the Advent passages from the Old Testament are from the prophet Isaiah alone, and we'll put just a few of them up on the screen. I invite you anytime this week, just take a few minutes and read one of these Isaiah passages. Jot down something that you could read this week. Spend a few moments in quiet and catch a flavor of the prophet and of ancient Israel and what longing and what expectancy looked like for them. For I do believe Isaiah, Israel, has something to say to us about Advent. We learn when we watch with them that it becomes clear for those who wait that waiting, while waiting, we don't really know what to do with ourselves. When we're waiting, we're a little bit restless and, and just look at any waiting room and you'll see 
those of us who are pastors spend some time at the medical center and the other hospitals, look at the waiting rooms where they, they add a television and then they pipe in the music and they put a few magazines and, and then a vending machine. Waiting people aren't sure what they should do, so, so they eat and then they take a nap. And, then, and, and if you watch waiting rooms long enough, you notice how when they get crowded, people spill out and wander and wait in the hallways and they go where the fresh air is and they explore other waiting rooms around to see if there's a better view. Because waiting people don't really know what to do with themselves. Waiting makes us a little anxious. We don't like waiting, no matter where the venue. I remember years ago after Elisa was born, it was suggested that I live in the waiting room up at the medical center. I got an infection near my spine from the epidural site. And because I was incompatible with the healthy baby, every place they could put us that was safe for her, I wasn't safe. Wherever I could go, she couldn't go. So it was suggested that I live in a waiting room for a few days while I received my antibiotics. That's before any of you administrated things down there. Who wants to live in a waiting room? I did it for a little while. Who wants to live in a waiting room? See, the waiting room is for unresolved issues. That's where we go when we don't know how things are going to turn out. So we see from Isaiah, from the Israelites, while waiting, we don't always know what to do with ourselves. It also becomes clear while, wait, while waiting, if we watch, we'll see that we are not alone. I'm encouraged by Isaiah's situation when he writes. He, he's not alone. Israel is never alone. In fact, go back and look at the passage if you have it open on your lap. Look at the amount of times he uses the pronoun we, we, we. You did awesome things, God, that we did not expect. We sinned. We have all become like one who is unclean. We all faded. For Israel, for Isaiah, they're not waiting alone. They're always waiting together, and that somehow brings me comfort. If I have to wait, you, I feel better if you're waiting too. When we had staff meeting this week, we noticed there was a little thing moving around the table. It was called grumpiness. You know, one person showed up grumpy, and a, little, a few minutes later, well, you're kind of grumpy too. Well, you're not doing so good either. Well, we're all grumpy. Yeah, let's grump together. So we grumped together. We feel a little better. We don't want to be alone in our grumpiness. When I read Isaiah, when I read about the Israelites, I rarely read about anyone waiting alone. They always seem to be waiting in community. While waiting, if you watch, you'll see you're not waiting alone. I think of the Wetmores out at the gravesite yesterday. Florence here in the church, you're not the only ones waiting for the second coming, are you? We wait together. How many loved ones are we waiting for? You don't wait alone. It also becomes clear while waiting that God doesn't always act with the mighty sound of an earthquake. It's not always the impact of a sledgehammer. For these folks in, in ancient Israel, that's how they best perceived God. But, but for you and I... Maybe not so. E even for the disciples of Jesus who longed for fire to come down from heaven, who picked up swords and wielded them, Jesus said, well, now wait. When the kingdom of heaven comes, it's going to be a little bit more like a mustard seed. It's going to be a little bit more like yeast fermenting. If you're not 
careful, you could miss it. And in fact, even the, the Jews and those who lived in the Roman Empire were waiting for God to come and dethrone Herod, take Pilate out, take out all these rulers, give us someone we can live with. And here comes a baby in a manger. It seems that God does shout some, but he whispers more often. And that if I'm not calm, I might miss the whisper of God during Advent. I believe we have to plan for it. I believe we have to be intentional about it. We have to orchestrate, orchestrate moments of calm and quiet. Don't expect them to find you through the holidays. We spent Sunday putting our Christmas lights up, which nobody in particular enjoys in our family, but we did it. And Monday night, we, I drove into the driveway, and it was dark outside, and I, for the first time, could see what we accomplished. And it's very simple. Little white lights outlining things, and a white star hanging in a tree, and little pine trees by the front door with twinkling, everything's white. Our daughters think it's terribly boring, but it's so peaceful. Little white lights by the pine trees, and on this left side of the garage, I have a heralding angel. She's all in white, glowing. Kirby told me on Sunday, you should go to the store and get two more of those so you can have a real revelation Christmas. <laughs> Somebody agrees. I, New Testament, said there's only one heralding angel for Mary. One heralding angel for Joseph. I'm going to stick with my one. And I drive up the driveway and every turn off the phone, it is so calm, so peaceful. And for a moment, I, I think of all the symbols. In, if you allow a quiet moment, this is what God does. And I think about lightness that comes in darkness and how darkness can't stay. I think about evergreen and the continual love. I, I imagine all of these symbols, and it's an absolutely precious, precious experience. All week, I've been pulling into my driveway and sitting still until I got home Wednesday night, and for some reason, my lights... They're my lights within three days. My lights aren't on anymore. I stomped into the house. Where are my lights? He said, well, I only set the timer for three hours. Don't do that. I'm having a moment in the driveway every night. Get, get them back on. And he says, yes, ma'am, which lets me know I've overstepped. But by Thursday, I had my moment back. I'm pausing in the driveway. Just for a moment, it becomes clear while we act that God might not always come in supernatural ways. It more often will come in a whisper in a quiet place. Look for those these weeks. Look for them, friends. It also becomes clear while waiting that not every problem, not every question I have, you have, will have an answer. Not everything I'd like solved this season will get solved this season. And this is what most waiting rooms have in common. Whether you move from the doctor's office or to the train station or to the airport, you can even go to the principal's office or go to your bedroom. If you got sent to your bedroom for acting out, even in your bedroom waiting room, all of these have in common the simple fact that I, it is probably out of my hands. I probably am not going to be able to solve this. Most waiting room experiences are like that. I'm highly unlikely to fix it. You're highly unlikely to solve it on your own. And in the waiting room of Advent, it's more clear than any other time of year, 
Nothing from within will be able to save us. In fact, we've already tried that. So perhaps one of the clearest Advent messages Isaiah gives us is, you better know that you're out of hope on your own. You ought to know you've exhausted your own resources. There is no package you'll open in December that will make you happy enough to solve anything. What you need is a redeemer. Advent brings us face to face with that reality in the waiting room. I can probably I probably cannot solve this on my own. But what is so startling to me over and over again in the Old Testament, even when this is the reality, it it does not keep Isaiah nor Israel from praying the prayer, from demanding God, but please just show up and show up right now. And, And it surprises me knowing Israel, knowing they know their situation, they understand their wanderings, they understand where they've been in the past, they understand how filthy they are, they even believe they understand the kind of God they have, the things you and I read in the Old Testament, some of which what troubles us, knowing all they know about their God, knowing what they know about their own history, still is Isaiah able to pray in verse 8, if you move there with me, the same chapter of 64, yet, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, do not remember iniquity forever. Now, now consider We are all your people. Please show up. We know our options. We know where we've been. We know what we've done. In your just judgment, you may wipe us out, but we'd rather take our chances with you. Israel can still pray that prayer. What Israel is longing for is God. What do you long for? What do you long for right now during the season in front of you? Is it anything at all close to God? Anything at all? Janine Woodard, a theologian who I enjoy, tells a story that's a couple, three years old now. She happens to have, she and her husband, a few children, but one of the boys in particular has autism, a 10-year-old son named Phil. And she describes what it is at Christmas time to live with a child who has severe autism. In their case, his autism is quite severe, so that everything about the holidays disrupts his life and their household. That is, anything being rearranged, the furniture moving so the tree can come in, the presents under the tree, the presents being removed, the presents being opened, the decorations going up at home, in the stores, at church, everything causes Phil to scream and kick. He goes to bed every night in a panic, screaming, and they make their way through the holiday season primarily by covering his head and carrying him in and out of stores in the house and into his bedroom where everything has been neatly organized since the summer. Phil can't handle anything of Christmas, doesn't want anything to do with it. There's never a present he desires. He doesn't want to open it. He doesn't have any interest in choosing anything. And in fact, when the neighbors put the decorations out in the yard, which seemed to be abundant on their street, she says, 
he stands insistently, sits on the couch, won't go to his own bedroom for fear that a light bulb will burn out in the neighborhood. He can't sleep if a bulb has burned out. In fact, his mother's found herself in the nighttime climbing up on the neighbor's garage, replacing one light bulb so her terrified son can just lay down and sleep. This is what it is to live with autism in the holidays, she says, in our house. So imagine our surprise at Thanksgiving one year when the older children were talking about what they wanted for the holiday and began to make their list. Phil said, I want Nintendo too. They just about fell off their chairs. The sister brought him a piece of paper, wrote on the top of the paper, Phil's Christmas list. He took the pencil, wrote PlayStation Toe, T-O-W. I want this at Sam's. Get it now. And so they got in the car and they all drove to Sam's. They didn't know he was paying any attention when they went to Sam's. They didn't know he knew PlayStation 2, what it was. He went right to the aisle, picked out the package he wanted, the bundle package, put it in the cart the whole time saying, Christmas, December 25, I will open PlayStation 2. Christmas, December 25. They took it home. They sat down. They began to wrap the present. That's Phil's. Christmas, December 25, PlayStation 2. I'll open it. I'll open it. Carried it under the tree, set it under the tree, sat there and watched his package. I want Christmas, December 25, PlayStation 2. And his mother says, for most parents, to have a child who doesn't understand consumerism is a delight. <laughs> but in our household, to have a boy who doesn't get it just makes one more hero for chicken soup for the soul that I might have a boy who wants something so badly he could consider working for it someday in the world as an adult. I have a boy who wants Christmas. She says, it is the most amazing, selfish miracle in the world. My boy wants Christmas. Oh, to want something this Christmas, to long for something that only God can satisfy. What are you longing for this year, says the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah.